Warning, you're about to hear unfiltered insights about regenerative agriculture and our sovereign right to natural food. This is not just a podcast, but a patriotic movement against the tide of food ignorance and corporate food giants shaping our modern food system. It's time to feed the people. AJ! What's up, Brooks? What up, dude? How's it going, brother? I am feeling good back home in Memphis, Tennessee. It is officially Thanksgiving week. That's right. Got a lot to give thanks for. What are you up to? Uh, same. I'm here in Richfield. We're just wrapping up a week of construction at the meat processing plant. Another successful and busy week. We uh, submitted a grant application for some funding. And man, I got to tell you, I don't know who's applying for these because this thing is a nightmare. It's, it's <laughs> We were up till about 11 o'clock last night and the 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 girl on our team that's actually doing the submission, she was up till two o'clock trying to get everything in. I mean, it's it's not easy, but well, let's we'll just see. give her a hand to start off the show. Successful and busy week, nonetheless. So. That is time, talent, and treasure, and we have our first guest. Let's let, let welcome Mr. RC Carter to the show. RC, can you hear us? I can hear you loud and clear. Where are you checking in from today, my man? I am uh, sitting on a pile of wood posts on a hill where I have cell reception from North Central Wyoming. Great to have you here. We are thrilled, thrilled, thrilled that you're able to join us. Um, as always, AJ, this is your show, my man. Where are we going to yeah. start today? Well, first of all, I just want to say, RC, how glad I'm and how happy I am to have you on the show, man. It's uh, especially as my first guest. I met RC a couple of years ago when uh, we moved up to Cody, Wyoming to operate a meat processing plant up there. And I ran into RC because I came to his ranch when Alejandro Carrillo was there doing a, uh, a course on regenerative agriculture, soil health. That's how I met RC and his wife, Annie. And um, we hit it off, man. We've kind of birds of a feather and, but RC is getting to live the life out there on that ranch and doing some really awesome things. So I just, RC, I'm glad to have you here, dude. As the first guest on this show, I've been wanting to put a podcast together for a long time. And, and I've always known that you were going to be, one of my guests because I love what you're up to and I want to I want people to know what Carter Country's doing and what you guys are doing to manage the land out there and make a difference. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, AJ and I met and we just hit it off and you know we're both kind of in in different facets of the industry. But what's been really cool about our relationship is how we you know every once in a while we'll get on a call and compare notes and just bounce ideas back and forth as we you know we're on this journey of dissecting what the hell is going on and uh you know i'm out here on the dirt and i know what i know and aj's doing what he's doing and so we're trying to see where things don't connect and like yeah. trying to solve for you know trying to solve for food yeah that's a great way to put it because i i don't manage land i don't have any livestock I, I come from that background with a basic understanding, but then meeting guys like you and becoming more educated and really as you're learning, cause you've shared a lot of things with me, a lot of breakthroughs and, and 
transformations that you're seeing as you're going. So, uh, RC, why don't you tell us a little bit about Carter Country Meats, um, as much as you would like about where you guys are located and what your what your operation has looked like historically, and then how things have shifted for you guys. Yeah, so we're located in north central Wyoming, a little town called Tent Sleep, which is uh, basically, there's 260 people here. It's a real ag-based community. Um, I'm a third generation rancher, uh, so I was born and raised here. And uh, I've just always had a, like a real deep connection to the land. You know, I'm a, I'm a dirt guy. I'm a, I'm a nature guy. I love being outside. I don't necessarily like to be clean. I think dirty is a, dirty is like a good term, not a, a, a bad term, you know. And, and so I graduated college at the University of Wyoming, came back to the ranch and committed to it. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. So I spent you know, well, probably 10 years just really focused on, you know, my, my, my dad, who's kind of a visionary was and we, we didn't really jive. He's like, listen, you know, working with family's tough. And I was like, if I'm going to do this, like, you gotta, like, you gotta, you gotta get out of my hair. And he's like, okay. He's like sink or swim, buddy. And so I just, I just jumped in and any money that we, any extra money that we had, I just invested in infrastructure. Um, you know, we've got 500 irrigated acres. And so my whole approach was I, I wanted the land to work for me. I didn't necessarily want to work for, for it. Um, because it's, I, I look around and I see what everybody's doing and nobody has any time you know, the job on ranch on ranches, like you're, the job's never done. Like if you're a perfectionist, like you're going to go nuts because there's always something that can be done. So I recognized that early on and, and tried to take a, a different approach that like when I was running into problems of production, um, rather than just keep doing it the way we've always done it, like to kind of get a 20,000 foot view and say, you know, look at the problem be like, well, maybe if we change something, a management strategy, maybe this problem would go away. So that was kind of, I guess my mindset was kind of, I was always destined to kind of run into regenerative agriculture. Um, and we started, we started a meat business, um, Carter Country Meats right there, uh, 10 years ago. And that was just a, a totally random deal. You know, my younger brother, Mark, he's a professional snowboarder. So he's over in Jackson hole and he knows some chefs and these guys are like, Oh, cool. You know, you're, you're cowboys. Like you have cows, like let's, let's eat your cows. So we butchered, uh, we butchered a cow and took it over to him. And I sat down, um, completely out of my element, sat down with seven chefs under this one umbrella. And they said, this meat's awesome. Like handshake deal. Um, we're going to use two, we're going to go through two beef a week. And I was like, looking at my brother, I'm like, dude, this is freaking home run, like easiest, easy money. You know, we all talk about like this easy money that's out there. And I could finally landed on my doorstep. So we committed, uh, went back to the drawing board, butchered, you know, it was probably four months later, I've got 80 beef in a refrigerated Connex box and we're, box and we're like, we're ready. And so we take them eight beef enough to last them one month. Um, and like four months later, they still aren't calling. And I'm like, yo, we got a problem, Houston. 
And so I go over there and like most of the, like all the ribeyes and strip loins, like they ate them, but they had no idea. Like, what do we do with the rounds? What do we do with things? So it was a, it was like, it almost sunk us. It took us three years to figure out, um, how to get out from under that initial like glut of beef that we had put into the freezer. And, you know, there was, there wasn't really at that point in time, there wasn't really anybody, or maybe I didn't reach out, but there wasn't anybody to say, Hey, how do I solve this problem? So we just had to figure it out ourselves. And that came by just like going and knocking up, go, just kicking in the back door to a kitchen or a restaurant and walking in and having a conversation and, and building, building relationships with people. And so we finally three, it took us three years. We got through it. We started flowing. We were doing really well. Um, and at that point in time, we like, we never defined what we were or what our product was. I was, I never liked to be put into a box. And so I was just kind of feeling it out. And what I realized was like the chef's Chefs were really good at cooking, like, you know, those top tier cuts, but they had no idea about, you know, the eye of round or the Santa Fe or all the, all the other cuts that come off of a cow. And, um, so kind of down the line, I ran into a guy by the name of Nate Singer. And at that time he was, uh, he was the head butcher for black belly, which if you're ever in in Boulder, um, they, they kill it, man. It's like whole animal butchery. So Nate was heading up that program and we're out chasing moving cows. And I see this, like, I see these grass fed fat beef and I'm like, what about this? So we butcher 10 of those. And that's when we, we saw what was inside of those animals. And that's when we really said, okay, this is what we were going to be. And def- we defined, um, the type of cattle, that we were going to hang our hat on and produce. And so on the ranch side of it, as we kind of evolved, like we got to the point where I had, I had all the pivots and, you know, we were, we, we had, we had improved about as much land as we could irrigated land. And then it was like, it came down to the point of evolution that is like, well, what's next. And the next move for us would have been if we would have followed the commodity norm, in the mainstream would be like plant corn. And I, you know, I've sat in tractors for 17 hours and, you know, I've had hydraulic fluid, you know, literally all over me. And I was like, that, I don't like that. And then just like, I kind of, I was introduced to, you know, the works of Alan Savory and Joel Salatin. And I was like, that sounds better. It takes less of my time. And it like, I'm a, I'm a nature guy. And I was like, this flows. I, at that point in time, I'd never heard of like regenerative agriculture or, you know, soil ecology, but that was kind of the path we went down. So I just like, we went into uh, no corn and, and, you know, we had fields of alfalfa and then over the period of time, we kept running into problems and problems. And I naturally just, you know, kept picking at it. And we ended up, you know, finding out about regenerative agriculture, went to some conferences, um, listened to, uh, I'd say the big pivotal moment was when I heard two individuals talk. Uh, the one is uh, Dan Kittredge uh, with Bionutrient Food Association. And he blew my mind. Like the guy, he just like, he was talking about shit that I like, I had no idea, like frequencies and, uh, you know, the, the ecology and how it all works. And uh, also, 
um, Dr. Alan Williams, you know, he's really big into that space. Uh, they have a cool group called Understanding Ag, if anybody's looking to get started in regenerative agriculture. And so it's kind of a humbling moment, right? Because I'm, I'm 46 at that point in time, you know, probably we really leaned hard into it maybe two years ago. And it's like, it's a really humbling experience because you have to admit that I've been doing it wrong. And you're like, you got this big ego check and you're like, okay, I've accepted. I've been doing it wrong. What am I going to do about it um, for the future of my soil, the future of my family? So two years ago, my wife and I, we helped worked with our local administ- BLM administration. We have a lot of public lands out here. And we said, hey, we want to intensively graze some property. And we took 800 pears out into the badlands and we grazed them for six, six weeks, just my wife and the kids. And we were like, Whoa, like I live in the dirt, but really just like being out with the cattle, um, opened up a whole new understanding of like how they move and what they're doing and like what they're keying on as far as grasses. So, you know, we repeated that same process last year. Um, with 1,300 animals, and it was a freaking shit show. <laughs> but um, it was really, really, it was like, it was last last summer was probably the hardest summer we've ever had as far as just like demand, time demanding and like no rest. Um, but we did it, you know, and now we're kind of in this rest period. But the cool thing that came from that was that we brought in scientists to quantitate our data, you know, and, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of degraded soil. We lost YRC. Ungulate. Oh, I'm sorry. I had a call coming in. <laughs> we used ungulate animals to create, um, to create enough impact to recreate what the bison were doing, um, to create a positive change in the, the, the ecology of our soil. And, you know, we're still waiting for numbers. We've established a solid baseline, but I don't really care about that. Like, I'm a, I'm a go from my gut and my heart and what feels right. And I'm telling you, like, that's where it's at. So that's you, kind of my background. Uh, man, there's so many directions we can go with this. So, but let me ask you about um, what were the lessons learned this year and how is that starting to shape your thought process for what you'll do next year? Um, there's a, there was quite a few, um, I'd say the biggest one, the one that pops into my head right off the bat is the, is navigating the bureaucracy on public lands, you know, Mm. ranchers, like I'm good at what I do because I wake up in the morning and I figure out what I I look around and I figure out where I'm going to be. Like nature's got a pulse and if you've always got your finger on it you just know what needs to happen um but dealing with those agencies i mean they've got they know they know what they're doing three months from now and so just figuring out that communication and um and the planning that needs to that needs to be in place to work with the government agencies was, uh, it was, it was, that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough nut to crack. Um, yeah. I heard, I heard Will Harris say, I think it was Will. He said one time that, uh, it was in response to Bill Gates's solution for carbon sequestration, which is this stupid factory that pumps carbon out of the air into the ground and 
locks it up, right? And he said, the problem is nature works as a whole. It's a circle. Engineers think very linearly. So you can't solve these issues. You can't solve these issues of nature when you try to just go point A to point B because that's not how not how nature operates. And so you're talking about blending two worlds where you have to kind of work in the world of what nature is actually telling you. And then the what you're butting up against is the linear thought process of the bureaucracy. And you're trying to navigate those two worlds to make it make it all come together. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. That that really clicked for me um, in the past month is like, you know, not only with the agriculture part of it, um, but just also the supply chains and the systems. And it's like all of these structures, like our whole society has been built on these linear supply chains with, you know, top down governance. Right. And, you know, when you beat your head against it enough, you're like, what is like, what is the problem? And you're exactly right. Like nature is a circle. And so it dawned on me, like, the reason it is not working is that we're trying to put square pegs into triangular holes, and it does not work. And there's very little, like, in the paperwork and the policies, there's very, you know, it's so deep that, and and there, there, it's just a different mindset of, um, it's so, it's just, there's so much there that, like, asking that system to change to work with nature, that's a tough nut to crack, man. Yeah. Y'all, you almost need the people making these decisions to come and live out on the ranch with you for a summer because they would change their whole thought process. Yeah. Yeah. And it's simply an education issue. You've either been educated in the universities or you've been educated in nature. And there's two different things there. There's, there's like knowledge and then there's wisdom you know, and wisdom comes from experiences in, in the land and knowledge comes from reading a book. And that's what we run up against is, you know, um, just those two different systems trying to, you know, where's the commonality there, but it, it has to be, you know, until it gets more cyclical and reciprocal, like, I don't, I don't know. Um, but that's really what regenerative agriculture is, is, you know, there's a lot of definitions of it, but it's just, you know, working more in synchronicity, synchronicity with, with nature. Yeah. Awesome. So one of the things that, um, I've learned from working with you and many conversations is the conversation around the quality of our food and its impact on our mental clarity and the trickle down effect that that has as a whole. This is something that I know you're passionate about because probably every time we get on the phone, this conversation comes up. So share with our audience, like as somebody who's on the ground working in nature that does have their finger on the pulse of where high quality nutrient dense food that also has that frequency involved What's, what is, uh, what have you learned from that experience? Cause you've also shared real data from the quality of the meat and the phytonutrients and the essential amino acids and the omega three to six ratios. Like you, you can see there's a clear difference in what it is you guys are doing and the impact it'll have on my body versus what's coming out of a feedlot. What have yeah. you learned from that? What comes up for you when, when you think about those relationships? I mean, it, it just comes back to, you know, what your reality looks like. And, um, people are so disconnected from their food supply chain, you know, that 
and running so fast that are so bought into the systems that we don't even realize that we are part of nature. Like you are, you are dirt. You're when you're a baby, your fingers this long and now it's this long. And it's like that came from the food you ate and the food came from the soil that you, that it was grown in or raised upon. And so like we all are one. You know, and when you when you pass on, when you pass away, like you will turn back to dirt. But people pretend like, yeah, you're like, yeah, whatever. But it's like, no, man, at our core, that is what we are. And we've just we've gotten so disconnected from that that it just it really blows my mind. And and, you know, but everybody's on their own journey. Right. And so. As you get as you get older, you know, hopefully you evolve a little bit and you understand like, you know, most of us are dumbasses when we're little because of like whatever our parents taught us or, you know, whatever we're doing. And I used to just like I used to just I used to drink alcohol like an Olympic Olympic gold athlete and I was running hard. So like at lunch, you know, you'd go in the convenience store and get the 128 ounce Mountain Dew and crush some couple, you know, my favorite thing for lunch was like they had these little pre-packaged sandwiches called like a, it was a triple stacker and that triple stacker, you just go nuke two of those, throw two packets of mayonnaise and three hot sauces on them. Man, that was it. <laughs> That was, I mean, that was just like so satisfying. Right. But then, you know, I, I met my wife and, uh, she was, she's always, she's always, she's always understood health. You know, she just, she's smart and she's like, you're a dumbass. Like, what are you doing? So it's been a progression as, as she cleaned me up and, and then this, like, you know, you don't, you don't, most people don't even know how good they can really feel because of what they're consuming. But when you do, have one of those experiences where you tighten your, your food up and you clean your diet up. Then all of a sudden, like this different level of, of, uh, energy and health comes into you and you're like, Holy crap. Like I didn't realize I could feel that good, you know? And that's kind of where we're at is like, you look around at like our corporate systems and, you know, look at the ingredients on, on anything that comes in a box or a package. And like most of those words, like they're not, they're not natural. Right. Um, and so it, it's been proven that nutrient dense foods, um, are directly linked to higher brain cognition, you know? And so that I get, I asked the question, I'm like, what's a good idea worth, you know, if, if that's the case, you know, and life is hard, if we're eating garbage, like it's shown to like not make you as intelligent. Like you're going to be tired. You're going to be less patient. You're probably going to be more angry. And so it's like, what's the value of a good decision? What's the value of a bad decision? And because if, if nutrient density is directly linked to higher brain cognition, then the reverse must also be also be true is toxic foods, regardless of what the USDA and FDA say, toxic foods are directly linked to toxic behavior. And then just, you know, go, go take a look and see, see who's, see who's winning at this game of life and see who's losing, um, from whatever metrics you want to marry, uh, measure. And it seems to be pretty obvious, but, uh, you know, nutrient dense food. I mean, there's a lot of, it's, it's a spectrum, right? And so mm -hmm. that's what we sent our beef in to get tested and, um, 
you know, it came back to be 264% more phytonutrient dense than grain finished beef. Um, 70% higher amino, uh, essential amino acids, 80% higher in non-essential amino acids. And I think, uh, an omega three to six ratio or six to three, I always screw those up, whatever that fat ratio is that was considered to be three and a half times higher when compared to other grass finished beef. And that yeah. has to be because of it's grown in ecologically healthy soil. So if you have, you know, you, you have to look at like, look at soil as like it was, you know, it's almost like looking up at the sky and looking at the stars and being like, holy crap, like, where does that end? It's deep. And so the soil is exactly that, but in reverse, it's a microcosm. There's uh, there's, it's been said that there's, there's as much life forms. If you were to count how many life forms were in a handful of biologically healthy soil, there's as much life in a handful than there is in all terrestrial life on top of our planet. And so like, that's, yeah, you can't even wrap your brain around that, but you know that it's, you're like, okay, there's more going on in our soil than just the commodity prescription of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, you know, and just fertilizers. And yeah. so it's a, it's a deep rabbit hole to go down. Um, yeah, man, but it, it does, it translates healthy soil, translate to healthy, ha- translates to healthy food and better decisions. So, you know, what's the cost when you go to the grocery store, you know, where we, we, most people are just buying like whatever's cheap and I get it like mm-hmm. money tight foods, freaking expensive right now, but we don't have, we're, we're not looking at it with the proper time preference. We're just looking at right now versus how is this bad? Cause the food you're eating, the decisions you're making right now, um, 30 years from now, that's when, that's when you're going to see the repercussions of that. Yeah. We talk a lot about the value of food because that's a big, when we talk about, you know, people just the, the ignorance, just the lack of education, that's what's missing is really people understanding or being being educated on the value of the nutrient dense food that they can have and, and the investment. Cause that's what, you know, it's interesting that we have to look and have a conversation about our food and our food quality being an investment now, rather than just something that you should do because your body is your body and you want to take care of it. But, but you know, the distractions that exist, we were kind of talking offline about, you know, the football game and being a Coliseum, like what they say about Rome, like you had the circus to keep people distracted from what was actually happening. And that's where we're at, man. People don't understand by and large, people don't understand that your food, everything else should be a considered investment. The food just is flat. You should just be flat about it. I'm going to spend the, I'm going to spend the necessary money to eat healthy because like you said, I like how you put that. What's the value of a good idea? So if you're struggling financially, potentially that if you had more better ideas and a clearer mind, you might not be in such a tight space. You might be maybe, maybe the desire to pay for comfort wellness, like fake meat. I don't know if you heard this RC, but they're rebranding, uh, uh, plant-based meat beyond meat is rebranding from healthy and sustainable to comfort wellness. 
So they're going to focus on making it very flavorful because they're an ingredient company, which we all know just means a whole shit ton of sugar. But, but changing from, I'm investing in comfort because my, I feel like shit. My day's shitty. My job sucks. I'm not, I don't have good relationships maybe because I'm a part of that, you know, well, all of those things are a return on the investment of what you're doing to take care of your body, your mental clarity, your physical capacity, all of these different things. And it's, it is like you said, it's what's the value of a good idea or what's the value of having a clear mind quantify where you're putting your money for your food in that aspect. And if you can educate yourself and become knowledgeable on that, then people get, they become more successful or at least they have their, they're happier in what they do. You know, we used to, we've said it before, used to spend 30% of our budget on food and 8% on healthcare. That's not the case anymore. It's completely altered. So Um, I met a guy, I met a guy the other day and he's, uh, he's really into solving food systems. And he told me that right now, America 2022 was spending, we spent $1.7 trillion on, on food in America. And we're spending $1.8 trillion on healthcare. Right. So they're pretty much, you know, you could say they're even yet. If we look at where American deaths, like what is causing uh, Americans to die? Eight out of 10 deaths in America right now are metabolic disease. That's what you're putting into and onto your body. So if, if that's true, I was just thinking, I was like, you know, we're really focusing on like the kids food and like looking at our public school systems. And you're like, we could spend 0.5 trillion on healthcare and you would have like $1.4 trillion to move over into food systems. Cause at this juncture in time, like we're all going to the grocery store and it's like shitty foods, even expensive, but it's like, it's this weird thing that like healthy food should be a right. And, and right now it's a privilege. Like Mm -hmm. if you're eating organic, you know, you're one of those guys, you know, Oh, organic food. You think you're better than me. It's like, no, but because it matters, but it's so damn expensive that it's, it's, it's a privilege to eat healthy food these days. Yeah, man, that's wild. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk to you about the land. Um, it's a, you know, that's a big part of your life. So we've had conversations about the bison that used to roam through Wyoming. What do you think pre wiping out the bison herds in the West, what do you think it looked like where you're at? in contrast to what it looks like. I mean, where you're at starting to look more like probably what it looks like, but what do you, what's your thoughts around that? I mean, you spend a lot of time out there. You, you work on those ravines that are getting washed out and you know, that hasn't been there for millions of years. So what is your yeah. thoughts around that? Yeah, I've, I've really, um, I've really, I've thought about that a lot and I've, as we're grazing, you know, we're trying to recreate that scenario, um, through grazing our cattle, And so I've just, I'm always looking at the topography and kind of questioning what I'm seeing. And, and then also when we have the cows, like watching their, watching their grazing habits and watching, um, you know, watching how they're gaining and, you know, in our area. So we're located in what is called the Bighorn Basin. Um, So the Bighorn Mountains come down from the north, um, from, from up around, uh, you know, level and they mix, it makes like this big horseshoe and then the wind rivers take off 
and they go back up towards Cody. So we're in this horseshoe. And so it's really hard to say what, you know, what that looked like because there isn't a whole lot of record. So the only thing that exists that we can pull from is basically like the historical record of, you know, going through and, and, uh, Alan Williams kind of keyed me in on this is they've gone through and they've like dissected all these journals of trappers, you know, beaver trappers. And, and that was the first written historical record of what this country, the landscape looked like when, you know, LaPierre crawled, got up on top of a peak and he looked across the, you know, he's like, what did I see? And it was, it was just uh, abundant and vibrant and, uh, just a completely diverse landscape um, compared to what exists now when you look at those descriptions. And they also, you know, there's, there's my, one of my favorite accounts is, is an account from the, one of the U.S. A U.S. cavalry regiment as they came out this direction to, to fight the First Nations. And this group of, of horses and cavalry, they fell in behind the trail of buffalo so, you know, you have to real like you have to wrap your head around like the numbers that these herds consisted of. You know, they say there was between 40 to 60 million bison um, in the in the arid west at that period in time. And some of these herds would consist of four to six million bison. You know, we've all heard of like the like when the train would come across and the train would have to stop for two to three days to wait for the herd to graze across it. And so when you have that many animals, as they were coming out here, I was really trying to like figure out like, what would that look like? And then kind of measure that against like, we're, we've got 1300 animals and we're, you know, we're kind of grazing 750 acre pods out in the rangeland um, and trying to make them get, you know, gain weight. Um, and I also, I like, as I'm driving up, I know that was the case. Cause as I drive up our mountain, up onto our mountain, there's like certain areas that are, they're, they're so steep, like these draws and they're just, they're terraced. Like there's still these terraces from, you know, for, that exist from like the last bison were shot out of here in like the 1870s, 1870s, but those terraces still exist. And it has to be bison because mm-hmm. wildlife that wouldn't don't walk on that. Like everything kind of takes the path of least resistance. So I look at those terraces and I'm like, those herds existed because there was no more room for anything to walk in the easy parts. So they were pressured over shoulder to shoulder to walk on these steep ledges. And I, I think that, you know, this idea of high intensity, low time duration grazing was was completely accurate because we have to assume that nature is perfect like man is not perfect that's not even debatable nature was perfect so there was an there was an equilibrium set by those grazing those grazing patterns prior to western european encroachment so as I'm grazing 1,300 animals and I'm seeing what's happening, it makes me think of like, okay, scale that up to 4 million animals in one bunch. You know, what would that look like? Yeah. And so in the front of this herd, so let's like dissect the herd. So you have 4 million animals. There's going to be the, the largest, strongest animals are going to be in the front because they know that's where the good food is. And yep. so those 
the animals that are walking 25 miles in a day and they take one bite and they move on. And so they're just basically getting the cream of the crop. And then behind them, you'd have like the cows and the calves and, you know, they're getting, you know, they're, they're getting the second bite of the grass. And then behind them, you've probably got the bulls. And then behind that, you know, you've got, I don't know how many, but you would have a lot of animals that are just basically waiting to die. The ones that are super old, that don't have much, um, don't have many teeth in their mouth. You know, maybe they've got a bum leg or, you know, they're waiting to die. So after, you know, after 3.5 million bison would come through, those last animals, like they're just, they're, they're just trying to survive. So they would literally, they would eat everything. And I, I know this to be true because I've pushed my animals to just see what imp, the imp, to try to recreate that impact. It w- didn't work very well if you're trying to make animals gain weight, but <laughs> yeah. you do it. So it's a really costly endeavor. But I, uh, now I understand what that scenario would look like. So I feel like those animals, they'd have eaten the weeds. They'd have eaten the, the sagebrush. Like they're just trying to survive. They're going to eat whatever was left after the big herd went through, which there wasn't much left. Mm-hmm. But then the key component to that is that's the high intensity, low time duration. So they just like the herd would come through over the course of two or three days and then they're gone. And the key piece to this is that they wouldn't return for two to three years. So they would let that ground recuperate all the manure and all the urine, which is basically the nutrient cycling of all those grasses would go back into the soil. The biology from their stomach, as science is proving, you know, we all heard about your, your gut biome. Yep. So the animal, they are showing that the gut biome of an animal speaks to the bacteria. Like when an animal takes a bite of grass, it drools on that grass, which is full of bacteria and, you know, whatever, all the other scientific things, critters. Um, And they communicate with the grass, with the biology that is on the grass, which communicates with the biology that lives under soil. And some guys are saying that, like, if that animal is deficient in magnesium, it'll tell the bacteria on the grass to tell the bacteria that are in the roots. And a few years later, that plant will sequester more magnesium. And so then we speak of nature's internet, you know, like Paul Stamets talks about this in terms of like the fungi and stuff. I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. on a logical sense, uh, standpoint, it makes sense. You know, yeah. if nature was perfect, um, nature doesn't lie to us. Like people lie to you. Systems lie to you. Nature doesn't lie to you. If it's cold, um, and you're not properly taken care of, like you're going to lose your big toe. Yep. And so it, it's, it's real and it's raw, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of our, our crash course into, into these large grazing systems. And so kind of to sum that up, like what I think has happened, um, I really feel that this land out here has lost a tremendous amount of productivity because of the grazing strategies. So we, you know, we had the bison prior to 1870s, they're gone. And then we went into this period of time where you had these large cattle and sheep herds, uh, 
coming up from Texas into these areas and, and doing this, mimicking the same intensity, but it was year after year after year. They were, they were leaving out the rest period. They'd hammer the same country every year. And that then we started to see a severe degradation of our landscapes. The grasses were hurt. The water was, wasn't as clean. You know, it was, it was kind of, the wheels started coming off of our ecology and our natural systems. And then people started to settle in the, in these areas. There's little towns and villages popping up and they, you know, that was prior to fences. And so the animals, their, their animals would just live around town. And so again, high intensity, low, there was no rest period. So then in 1934, um, our government recognized that there there's some problems going on in the West. And so they basically with with barbed wire and wood posts, they they basically came in and said, All right, they divvied it all up, cut it into a pieces of pie, and said, Okay, rancher Bob, here's your piece, and this is this is how you're going to graze it. So at that juncture in 1934, we switched from the natural cycle of high intensity, low time duration to low intensity, high time duration. Instead of 500 cows being here for two days, now we put our cows out, for 500 cows out for, you know, two months. And what I noticed, and so since that time, we've seen this massive influx of in invasive species, invasive grasses, um, massive, it, not, I wouldn't say, there was a massive degradation happening. It was like the cliff was like this. And then once they implemented the, the Taylor Grazing Act, the, the degradation, the, the steepness of the decline leveled out a little bit, but it was it's still degrading. Like we're still in a experiencing degradation. And the only way we can fix that is like transition and go back to these old – you know, the historical style of, of grazing. Yeah. And so it's uh yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting concept, but it's, it's just like kind of a duh, you know, like <laughs> yeah. did it. you know, it's kind of like saying, you know, there's these long studies going on about the honeybees and everybody's like 25 year study, something's killing the honeybees. And they're like, it's the chemicals. Like, Duh. <laughs> yeah, brilliant, you know, but how much how much chemicals have been sold in the meantime, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the bureaucracy takes a, a very long time to transition. So that's kind of our purpose now is like we need to transition, um, you know, for the good of everybody, for the future of soil. I feel like the future of soil and the future of people, like they co they coexist, like we're one and the same. So that, that's yeah. an interesting concept that uh, that I, I came upon as we're, you know, riding the struggle bus in the hills. Yeah. Was it challenging? <clears throat> was it challenging to get your dad to see a new way of doing things? Because that's something that I find a lot of in the, you know, what do they say? The six most dangerous words in ag is it's how it's always been done. Yeah. This is how we've always done it. Was that a yeah. challenge? And has that changed now that you've started seeing results on this? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's really tough. He, he, my dad's like, he's a, he's a visionary guy. Like he's, he's always been like, uh, an, an early adopter of, of strategy, mm. um, in grazing and stuff. So he's, he's a gambler, man. Like he's willing to risk it for the biscuit. And so he understands it and he also understands nature. So he's like, well, that, you know, most people, when you explain something to them, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. 
but the the sticking point um, has always been like, well, how do we make it cash flow? Yeah, you know, like, well, where's the money out? Because we, you still have to, am, you still have to be able to make money, and um, you know, pay the bank and pay for the tires and the vehicles and all the stuff. So that's been the biggest. That's been the biggest hurdle of having a meat company and just trying all these like. You know, we're basically experimenting, you know? Yeah. It sucks because, and so we're, we're working towards like a solution to that is like, we need to have regenerative agriculture experiment stations. We need to have institutes because you take one guy, which I'm like, I'm raising my hand. I'm like, I'll, I'll, I'll gamble. Like I, I love to solve problems, but we also, you know, when you, when you try something new, there's a high probability that you're going to fail. Like it's not going <laughs> to yeah. work. And so we're trying to figure out like this balance between the, the tech and the, the old tech and the new tech and find that sweet spot where we can heal soil, make nutrient dense food and be profitable. And so that's like, uh, you know, that's kind of a challenging thing, but yeah, my dad, he's, he's down. Um, you know, he's kind of given me the, the lead on all this stuff and saved my ass on more than one occasion, um, financially to let me kind of pursue, pursue ideas and things like that. But it's really cool too, is like his open mind, you know, as you get older, you know, you slow, you start to slow down and, you know, at some point you like kind of quit learning stuff too. Mm. And, and so I, I, I see it in him when I bring to him some like new idea, and get his wheels turning because he's part of it. So he can kind of live vicariously through these ideas and these, these, these thoughts to like kind of occupy his mind to continue to solve problems also. So mm-hmm. that's, really cool. that's a, that's a, that's a, a feedback loop that I, I really enjoy um, bouncing off of them. And, you know, these old guys, they, they, they know there's so much wisdom in them that I'm, he, he's like a sounding board. I'm like, Hey, what about this? Yeah. And like, I know I'm, a, I'm an expert in what I know, but I, I don't hesitate to bounce it off this older wisdom because they've been there, done that too. And they've got experiences that they can kind of help, help mitigate, um, you know, the mistakes along the way. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we're committed to in the podcast and what I've been working on is the education pipeline for consumers. And and some of that includes not pulling any punches about where we actually are as a society, as a nation with our food supply chain. From being, the, being at ground zero where the beef is born, raised, and then put into the supply chain, What what is your what concerns, if you have any, do you have when you look around at what's going on and the way we're headed? And what do you think the likely outcome is if we don't change the way we're doing things? And and if you were to change that from your perspective, what would that change look like as far as sourcing our food and, and, and helping our nation with that? If we don't, ch- if we don't change um, our practices and the existing supply chains, um, we're going, we will lose, we'll lose our future of freedom. Uh, if we continue to eat processed, processed foods, we're, we're going to, we're going to lose it all, man. And I mean, when I say all, it's like the most important thing to me is my freedom. Like I, 
I, I like to be free. You know, I'm accountable to myself. So I, I don't really feel like I need somebody to tell me how to live my life because I'm accountable, accountable to myself and I'm accountable to the land. And if we don't change the practices, like the lands are going to continue to deteriorate, um, which is our source of strength. Our source of strength isn't money. It's not um, gold. It's not oil. It's food. Like if you're as a people, as a society, as a world, if you're hungry, if we're all hungry, we're, we're weak. And, and at right. that point, like if you're hungry, you only have one problem. Like yeah. you got all stuff going on. My TikTok reel didn't blow up like it was supposed to. If you're hungry, you got one problem. All that other stuff does not matter. Um, and you Victor. Know, I, don't, I don't really believe in all that stuff. Like I believe in, I believe that all this stuff is happening right now because we're on the cusp of change. Like mm-hmm. you all see it happening like this. If we were, if it was like pre COVID, and everything was just, you know, the tyrannical tiptoe, it would, it would just, you know, we wouldn't be, I wouldn't be as motivated and it wouldn't be as apparent of like what we're up against. Yeah. And this is like, COVID was like gas got dumped on the fire to be like, yo, we need change and we need it now. Cause it's like time is of the essence and people are waking up to it, you know? Yeah. and we just, we, we can, we need to heal soil and we need to heal soul to, so that we can have a healthy society. Cause at the end of the day, like we all want the same damn thing. Like we just want to be able to be productive. We want to have a solid sense of purpose. We want to be, you know, we want to have joy in our lives, you know, and we want to have our time. We want to be creative. Um, and so I think that, that is the path to get there is looking at that holy trinity of soil, soul, and society, one plus one still equals two. And and that's the only way through. Yeah. Yeah, Victor Frankel wrote the book, Mad Search for Meaning. And Victor Frankel was a, a POW, uh, not a POW, he's a, a Jew prisoner in the concentration camps and uh, then became a psychologist and wrote this book about the experience. And he said, one of the questions that we get often is why didn't you all stand up against your captors? There were far more of you than there were of them holding you captive. And he said, when you are starving to death, you will shovel your neighbor's ashes out of the kiln because all you're thinking about at your primal level is food, your next meal. That was the level of control they had. So they had so many more bodies that could essentially, you know, I, I think as a, as a non-starving person, why did they all just rally and rush them, get a few of those weapons and then turn them on them? Well, that's coming from the thought process of a guy who isn't starving to death. And so reading that was really, really important and really powerful. And you're right. It's if we don't maintain our land and our food and our right to food sovereignty, we become a very weak population. So, yeah, um, it all starts like as far as your foundation, food is foods, the, that's the foundation of it. You know, yeah. it all there. Cause if you have clarity in your mind, then you can, you know, then you can move forward. But if we're, you know, most we're just, we're moving around very, very cloudy and it, it's harder. So 
I think that's the key. You know, if you can tell anybody that's riding the struggle bus is like, man, tighten your diet up, get some exercise, just like, you know, what would, what would your try to recreate, you know, a scenario of like what we were doing primally 200, you know, if a potato doesn't just say potato, then you probably shouldn't eat it. (laughs) So what's, what does the future of the Carter ranch look like? What does the future of Carter country meats look like? And and I think one question I want to, to, to lead with that, with those questions is I want people to kind of understand um, how they can help secure their food supply chain by supporting the people that are growing it. So as of now, do you have an idea of how many families that you could potentially feed with your ranch? Oh man. I mean, I guess it depends on how much, how much meat people eat, but what really what we're shooting for is I just, I don't want to, I don't want to be a giant corporation. Like I want to sell three cows a month. That's it. And if we can hit that, like I I'm, I'm happy, you know? So that would be, I mean, I think, I don't know. We, we definitely like, we, we eat a lot of meat. Um, but I'd say we could probably supply, you know, 30, 30 families, 30 families a month. Or yeah. 360 families a year, essentially. We bought a beef. We bought a full beef. We have four in our family and we don't eat beef every day, but we eat beef a lot. Um, and I still am working through some of what we have left just through our family's own sort of living life cycle, right? Eating out. We don't live on the ranch. So we, we are in town, which means we're probably eating out more than the average person out intensely. That's doesn't have a whole lot of places to go, but, but four people, one full beef uh, is still some of it in our freezer. And that's, that's a good feeling. But so based on what you have, you're talking about 360 families, how great would it be if you had a name of a family on every head of cattle that you moved throughout the year, knowing that that supply chain was a closed loop. You had the people you had and they knew they had you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the key. And that's where they're like the, the procurement of food from the grocery store. You know, there's a lot of disconnect in there because as you like move down, like in the, the supply chain is like, that's a, that's a really, that's a whole another conversation is like, how that works. And that's, you know, that's kind of our, you know, mutual expertise is like, I'm on the production side of it and you're, you're working on the processing side of it. I need you mm-hmm. to get my product into a different, a different form. So it's palatable and you need me so that you can keep your lights on. Like if you have a processing plant, yep. like you need to have animals coming through it. And then it also with the consumers, like, they need me for nutrient density and I need them to, to be the, the, the end stop of my product. And so looking at this whole, you know, our whole supply chain and how it's, it's so disconnected, you know, I, it's, it's so one of the biggest problems that I see in it is it's, it's become so we've given the power away. Um, and that's, that's a rabbit hole as far as, <laughs> you talk about these big four packers that control Mm -hmm. 86%. So 86% of the beef process in the United States goes through four companies. Two of them aren't even, two of them are owned by, uh, you know, different American companies. Yeah. Yeah. 
and, and it's pretty, you know, there's a lot of shady conversations mm-hmm. being had in that, in that realm also of who, who actually owns those companies. Um, and so they've really like, they control, you know, the, they've got ties, they've got huge lobbyists that are dictating the policies w- within the USDA, which the, you know, U.S. Depart- US Department of Agriculture. And if you're processing through a USDA processing plant, which you have to, if you want to move your beef across the state line. So yep. if you're in Utah and I'm in Wyoming, my, pl- my beef, I can't go, you know, process it out in my field. I have to go through a certified plant, which I'm sure you've had, you know, that's probably one of your biggest bottlenecks is navigating, you know, all those processes and protocols. And it's like the little guy can't afford it. Yeah. You know, you cannot, these small processing plants don't have the bandwidth, um, the, the capital bandwidth and to, to navigate that process to get to that point. So I guess then the, the moral of the story is we all need each other, but these middlemen are controlling it. Yeah. Um, I was yeah. in a really interesting conversation with some really high level nutritionists and people that are, you know, participating in, um, in war games with, within our food system, trying to, trying to solve, like, how do we fix this? You know, our people are just getting sicker and sicker. You know, the, uh, I think at this point, autism is like one in 36 kids now are autistic. Jeez. Um, I mean, just you look at all the metrics of like what human health are and like the, the rates of heart disease are going down. Like we're not dying from, we're not as many people are dying from heart attacks. But if you look at like how many people are having their first heart attack, that's going up. But the pharmacy is keep like more people are having heart conditions, but less people are dying from it. Yeah. Bill yeah. to do it. And so it, the, you know, when, when they, they say that, yeah, heart attacks are going down, that's kind of bullshit yep. because more people are getting them and it's, it's our, it's our freaking food. Um, the life in the last two years, the life expectancy in the United States has gone down. So Jeez. we're, we're actually living, we're not living as long as we were two years ago. Yeah. For the first time in history, the, the, the uh, youth are expected to live uh, a shorter lifestyle than their parents. Cause we, mm-hmm. we've, we've advanced in knowledge and stuff and, and our awareness of medical, the value of, you know, certain medical practices and so forth up to a point where like, Oh, we're living till, you know, grandpa was 96 cause certain things kept him alive, but he also ate healthy. So he ate healthy and had medical advances to keep him alive. So he was alive till 96. Well now we eat like shit and those medical advances are now you're kind of almost tapping out the resource of your medical advances because you're now eating like crap and dying younger. And it's, it's pretty fascinating. You know, what you said there was, is so true. And that's kind of the goal of the, the from the farm app is to remove everybody out of the middle that doesn't need to be there. And that literally is the only people that matter is the consumer, the producer and the slaughterhouse. That's it. Unless yeah. the consumer wants to slaughter his own or the farmer wants to slaughter it for them, but most people don't want to do that or they're too busy. So you just, you need those three things to make that shift and make that work. And the revenue 
would support the producer at a higher level and the quality and the food security is my thing, right? If I know you and I'm like, Hey, I'm ready to fill my beef. I'm ready to fill my freezer. If I have a relationship, we just, it's, we just talked about it. 360 families is what you can feed. That is not a lot when there's 327 million meat eaters in the United States. And so what I've told people is like, our slogan is shake the hand that feeds you. Because if you do, and you're ready for more and they, and the producer knows they can count on you, the consumer to have their back. And the consumer knows that the producer will have their back. That's synergy. That's what you need. And then you can support one another. Well, and, 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 and the, the, the producer and the consumer are what wins. Yes. Because right now what we see is both sides are being lied to. The consumer is getting sicker. And you look at the the statistics in agriculture as far as like the, you know, I'll just list some. The average farmer and rancher is 57 years old. Like the kids aren't sticking around. Why would they stay to starve like mom, you know, like mom and dad and work your ass off? Like the quality of life is it's it's profound. Like this is the most amazing lifestyle. You know, it's the coolest office. You get yeah. to dictate what you do, you know, yeah. but why, why is it that the suicide rate in agriculture, the agriculture industry is three and a half times that of the national average. There is no, this is the suicide rate in agriculture is the highest of any occupation. And it's because of the financial stress. So in, in, in having these conversations of how do we fix this? I look at it. I'm like, okay, right now food is extremely expensive. So the consumer's kind of getting screwed. The farmer and the rancher, they're not getting paid. That is the, that is the, that is the catalyst for, um, you know, for the high suicide rates, for the, uh, the high foreclosure rates. You know, we went from 1.3 million ranchers in the 1980s to now we're down to 700,000. Pat Goggins, who, who he, he, he's the most literate guy an educated guy on like livestock in Montana and he runs these big auctions. He said, they've got 15 complete herd dispersals this year. He's like in my lifetime. And he's an older guy. They've never seen so many complete herd dispersals. The what does that, what does that mean for the, the city person? So a complete dispersal is basically like if I, if I, if I have, I've got a ranch and I say, I'm out, I'm selling all of my cows. And that's what's going on Yeah, because I feel like what that is, is right now this year prices are really good. So we do have a good year, which that's like pretty typical, you know, um, ranchers do good for one year, but then they starve for five. (laughs) Yeah, That's, that's just the history of it. You know, they give you the, the pack, but it's all controlled by, you know, the Packers, these four, you know, there's been a lot of government inquiries, multiple inquiries into like price fixing and all this Mm -hmm. stuff. They've never found anything, but it's like, there is no reason right now as we're watching the price of cattle drop, there's no reason for it other than they can't. So they've gotten tired of like their margins haven't been big enough. So now it's time to turn the, turn the faucet off and now people are going to starve. So right now what we're seeing is these older people that are getting, uh, getting up there in age, they see that the price is really well, uh, the price is really good. And, but they look at their life and they're like, we're getting older. We don't have anybody like our kids have moved to the city and there's nobody to take over the workload. 
Mm. And so like, dude, at some point you get tired. Like you can't go dig post holes. You can't go, um, you can't go work the land like you used to. So those folks, they see they're out and they're taking it. And then you wait till next year when the price tanks again, because it's like the price is really good. Then the price will be really bad. And then those folks that are like, that are beholden to the bank, that's when you see they'll go. Yeah. So the question is, is like if the consumer's getting screwed, the rancher's getting is controlled, the price they can, uh, they're getting paid then where does the only solution lies in the middle? And so the question is, is the middle guy, is the corporate packer willing to give up some of their margin? And that's like laughable, like, no, you don't. So the only solution through this is, is decentralizing the packing plant. And I mean, it really hit home for me during COVID. I ran down to Denver. So we fulfill, we ship our beef to all 50 States. Um, and we fulfill out of a warehouse in Denver. And this is like, this place is badass. You know, if you're a warehouse junkie, you go in there and like, they can literally fit a thousand semi loads of frozen meat, refrigerated and frozen meat in here. And I rolled down there when the, all the processing plants had shut down, there was one semi load of meat left in that place. Jeez. So that was scary to me. Cause I'm like, I like ran to home Depot. I'm like, dude, there's a lot of people down here. And so it comes back to the problem. Like, what do you do if you've only, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if you don't have food, like we got a problem. Yeah. So there's like, the, there's, there's a lot of levers there that, um, seem to be getting pulled. So, yeah, I don't know, man, there, there's, a, there's a lot, yeah. there's a wow. lot back there, but I think the consumer, there is no ill effect from the consumer, connecting directly to the producer, but you know, it's not as, uh, you're gonna, the consumer has to give up a little bit of comfort, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be a little inconvenient for you to go direct, but it's going to pay dividends down the road. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've got this, we're on this move right now that I want to sell whole cows. Like I want to sell cow direct to you. Um, cause right now we're fulfilling, um, you know, we got into the, the direct consumer model um, and that worked, you know, but it's still we, 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 we transitioned into the direct consumer model so that we could alleviate the middleman. And then but what we found is like now FedEx, FedEx and UPS have become the middleman. Like, dude, it's so expensive to ship meat. Like we have to add almost. I bet it's between five and seven dollars a pound on our on our boxes mm-hmm. of meat to take care of the insulation and the dry ice and all the subscriptions and pay FedEx. Which I, is crazy because Denver is right there. I mean, you could take a load in and disperse there obviously there are far more consumers just in Denver alone that you could feed the your whole ranch could just support that one area. Yeah. You know? And, and, and yet I, you're doing two day air, which is $80 to Florida. <laughs> it's nuts. It's, 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 cra- it's crazy. But like we do as, as consumers, like we need to start rethinking our buying patterns. Yeah. If, if, if these models do not, they have to work for the, the farmer and the rancher first. Cause yeah. those are the guys that are, they're producing it. You know, 2% of the country feeds 98% of the country. They're not being taken care of. 
but I can, you know, if, if you could go like make a $250 investment in a cooler and put it in your garage, um, or we have these other ideas we've talked about with the cow share program. Yep. It's like, I can move that box to you. I can move a whole cow to you for, you know, $10 a pound. Like mm-hmm. you save, I would rather take that price down and work that system to save the, con- I would rather save the consumer $7 a pound than pay it to FedEx. Yeah. And, right. And the consumer gets nutrient dense food security. Like it's in your freezer. Yeah. You got it. It's right there. You know, that's like your food bank, like create your own food bank. Yeah, exactly. That was the, that was the thing I learned up there in Cody that was hindsight. I was like, ah, oh, duh, I should have realized that. But when I got to Cody, 90% of what we shipped was two day air which was a huge chunk of the margin. And now down here in Richfield at Utah Beat Producers, where we're building this facility, we're two-day ground from the entire West Coast. So we went from like an $80 a box down to a $25 a box. Now, the reality is Salt Lake's only two hours north. So really, we shouldn't be shipping anything across state lines. We are and we will because we're happy to. And frankly, there are states like California that their policies are so corrupt that they've put their, their population in such vulnerable positions that, you know, we're still here to feed people and we'll do that. But there, a, a working supply chain is localized. You have enough producers in most areas throughout the nation. And frankly, the need to increase that production number, right? Homesteading is making a huge comeback across the nation. I think, I frankly think some of these small homesteads are going to, save our ass if things fall apart because at least some people are starting to grow more food and can educate and so forth. But so, uh, man, we could go on forever. Let's, let's wrap up here, but I want, want uh, people to kind of know cartercountrymeats.com is how they can get a hold of you guys to buy from you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Carter country, cartercountrymeats.com. I mean, if you want to have kind of a, a, a window into, like what we're doing. Um, we basically just, we do Instagram as far as our social media. So you can just check, check us out on Instagram. Um, same name, right? Carter country meets. Yep. Carter country meets. And, uh, you know, we, we sell, we're at the point now where all we sell is a curated box that basically represents part of five, 10, 20 pound box that represent a whole animal. But if anybody's out there and they want to, uh, you know, they want to increase their food security. We're taking we're taking orders for um, for whole animals this, you know, for, for December. And awesome. so just I don't know the best way to reach out. You know, I put my phone number out there, but I don't, <laughs> I don't have good enough cell reception reception to answer it. Well, I'll say this. If, if you're listening to this and you're interested in that whole animal and you're somewhere in the Colorado area, however far, how far will you guys go with that, RC? Man, I can I can move. I figured out a way that I can move a whole cow across the, the entire country for 10 bucks a pound. Okay, great. So why don't they, why don't you just have them go to Carter Country on Instagram? Yeah. Carter Country meets on Instagram and send RC a direct message and let him know if you're interested in that. I have had his beef. RC, I, I'm, I love you guys. I love you and your family. My wife, one of my favorite memories is my wife holding that branding iron on your ranch. That's the first time she ever did that. And man, I was never more, more turned on. <laughs> so yeah. I love it, man. I yeah. love you too. And uh, I just, I appreciate these relationships and I appreciate um, your purpose and your voice 
um, for connecting people. Because AJ, like, man, you, you're, you're awesome. Like what you're, what you're doing and the message that you're putting out there, it matters. Even the people who don't get it, like food is a common denominator, and that's like that's what we need to. That's where we rebuild from is the food and the soil because it's a common denominator. It connects us all, and it's it's so important. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, brother. Brooks, why don't you wrap us up, my man? First of all, thank you, RC, for this enlightening conversation. Clearly, clearly I was doing some learning today because I said quite little, very little on the front end and on the back end. So RC, be sure to stay on with us all the way through the end of the show. I'm going to let our listeners, I'm going to remind them that this is a value for value podcast. So if you got value out of the conversation between RC and AJ today, you have the ability to give that value back in the form of your time, your talent, and your treasure. If you have listened all the way through, you have donated your time. And for that, we thank you. You can also rate this five stars. You can leave us a kind comment you could share it with 10 maybe maybe 20 maybe 100 of your best friends you could go to carter country meets and actually make a purchase if you would like to donate your treasure and receive some beautiful high quality regeneratively regeneratively focused and raised agriculture and meat so aj We'll have another interview next week, but we will do our make good for all of our producers and donors during the producer segment next week. So if you donated, just know that we got it. We love you. We appreciate you. And you are going to get your shout out during episode six. Until then, be well and God bless.